Hey everybody, it's Eric Torenberg, co-founder, partner of Village Global, a network-driven venture firm. And this is Venture Stories, a podcast covering topics relating to tech and business with world-leading experts. Hello and welcome, everyone. I uh, hope you're having an awesome Thursday. This is day two. I'm Mustafa, part of the team at Village Global, and we're really, uh, really thrilled to have you all here. Catherine, um, I'd love to know, first of all, you know, how is General Catalyst just different from other firms? Yeah. Actually, before we do that, actually, Catherine, why don't we, why don't you actually tell the audience, um, you know, about your background? Because I know that you obviously you're a partner at General Catalyst. Um, you know, you, you do early stage investments. I know you're on the board or a board observer, your director uh, or on the, the board for uh for Andrew, Titan, Nova Credit, uh, Literati, I think just the audience would, would love to hear before we even jump into, um, you know, that question. I should, uh, you know, let's pause and maybe give everyone uh, your background. Uh, we're a sector and stage agnostic venture capital firm, uh, equal parts East Coast, West Coast, global venture capital firm. I focus on early stage investing. So everything from uh, idea on a napkin stage all the way up to Series B. And I'd say that the kind of common theme among all of my investments, because, you know, er everything from aerospace and defense to computational biology, uh, to drones, to healthcare, to to pure consumer, uh, the common theme is that they're often highly regulated um, and that they are often focused on what I would call like a civic function. So either replacing a civic function of government or selling to the government. So there's a kind of huge theme of, you know, when, when you think of what does the government provide, it provides education, it provides um, certain types of, of, you know, healthcare, like areas, areas that I think are really important for civic missions. So um, that's sort of the common theme among the investments that I work with. So why or how is General Catalyst uh, different from other firms? Sure. I mean, you know, it's interesting because I joined GC and I'd say we were a very different firm than we are now and that we were much smaller. We were much more of what you would call like a boutique, you know, early stage venture capital firm that, that really focused on Series A. And the last five years, we've just seen a tremendous change in the venture ecosystem. And I think GC is one of the few firms that has really changed dramatically. So now we are a sector stage agnostic firm. We have a growth fund. You know, we, we've really invested in being able to, to have a, a, you know, a completely you know, differentiated seed experience. I, I think the way that we're different in terms of the people who work there is that, you know, when I when I was joining General Catalyst, I talked to something like 40 firms uh, about joining and everyone looked at me and said, wow, you're, you're so weird. You're, you're a former journalist. Uh, you haven't been classically trained at Goldman Sachs. What are we going to do with you? And GC was founded by kind of what I call, I mean, and what they refer to themselves as a bunch of misfits that wanted to be in venture that didn't really know uh, how they fit in. But, you know, filmmakers and, and people who had, had founded businesses before, but had a terrible experience with venture capital and wanted to change that. And so we still have this DNA of everyone comes from a different place. People are a little off, a little weird. But we all kind of work together as a group of misfits and have built an extraordinary firm that, that kind of spans all of the stages. So uh, you're not going to meet two people at GC that have similar backgrounds that's come from the same countries. Uh, you know, everyone sort of has a unique path. And I think that's what makes us a little different than all of the other what I would call platform firms. Amazing. A, a motley crew of misfits. Yeah. Um, and I think you already touched on this, but I'd love to just expand on it. Um, you know, how are you personally different from other investors, other you know, VCs? I'd love to just kind of hear a little bit more about that. Yeah, you know, I, I love this question because I think all of us think we're special snowflakes. And if I'm being really honest, we, we probably are very similar. You know, it's like, what is the job of a VC? It's to find extraordinary people. So it's like, it's not, <laughs> there's nothing that that extraordinary about the job in and of itself. It's, it's you know, it's, it's just who do you think is extraordinary? So like the founders are actually the, the, the people that are unique, the, the investors usually aren't. 
but how am I different? So I, I, everyone has their kind of strong skill sets and comes from venture in a different place. And so they have ways of framing what does extraordinary look like. And I think I, because of my kind of unique experience as a journalist, I, I've always been focused on narrative. And I focus tremendously on who is the protagonist, what makes them unique, and then what mission are they solving? And I kind of don't pay attention to anything else. I, you know, people sometimes ask, what do you look for in early stage company? What's the minimum amount of revenue you want to see? Like, what, what are the kind of frameworks that you use? And because no, no extraordinary, no two extraordinary stories and the history of stories are the same. Um, there's often, you know, there's frameworks, there's, there's sort of like, you know, the, the framework of there, there's seven great stories, and they're all told differently. But real amazing stories are actually told in very different ways. And so I don't have very strong frameworks of what I'm looking for. It's just the experience of hearing the story and, and how it makes me feel. And that's a scary thing to tell limited partners. It's a scary <laughs> thing to tell uh, your, your partners at a firm that like, you know, sometimes I can't explain why I feel a certain way about a founder, but they're, what they're telling me is so extraordinary and kind of here are the, you know, here, here's the kind of facts that I'm hearing and here's sort of the, the reasons why I think it's compelling. Um, so that's a unique way to invest. I think it leads to, a uh, much more diverse portfolio of, of companies that you invest in. It leads to things being a little weird, as I've said, like the joke about poop for preppers, like people would believe that I'd invest in that. But but I'd say the, the main thing I'm looking for is just extraordinary people building a, a future that that I couldn't have fathomed. So so that that's that's sort of the the key thing that I think makes me a little different. Yeah, I love that. Maybe then you could you walk us through concretely through that decision making process. Uh, so is it more emotional or is there I guess there's not maybe a a particular like framework, as you mentioned, but maybe just walk us through um, that process. Maybe with a recent investment, if you can talk about that, um, and what even happens after the pitch meeting as well. So I think just all those uh, details. I'm sure our the founders here would, would love to hear about that. I, uh, I I think of early stage investing as a combination of reason and revelation. So it's not just how I feel. It's it's definitely like there has to be uh, you know a plausible story and sort of. Uh, decision tree around sort of like how things are working out. And usually I spend a lot of time with founders really drilling them on, do they believe in the story themselves? There are some people who are really mm -hmm. good at telling stories, but when you drill down, they actually don't have the same conviction that you would expect of someone who believes in their story. So I'm trying to think like, I mean, I, I, investments that that I've done recently or a good investment just to talk about is I'll, I'll share the, the Andrel story because I think that was a story that no one really believed in in 2017 when we made our, our first investment at the seat. And we've invested in every round since. And it's a company that's just you know doing extraordinary work in terms of transforming the Department of Defense. I think when you look at a company that says uh, the customer doesn't know how to buy products off the shelf, um, there hasn't been a defense contractor built in the last 70 years of the size that we want to become. And we're a group of people who believe really in this mission. And we think that we can change not only how the customer thinks, but also change uh, how, how products are built in a sector. That's a bold vision. And, and we certainly, uh, you know, listened to the story, but the story was plausible. You were working with a group of experts who had, you know, worked at Palantir, worked at Oculus, really understood what needed to be done. And so the deeper we drilled down, the more the story made sense. It was just a really hard vision to achieve. And so with that framework, we were thinking, okay, if, if, these, if this team, which is extraordinary, can change the way the Department of Defense thinks about the future of defense, the types of products they need, and how they'll buy products, this can be an extraordinarily massive company. And, and that was sort of the investment thesis that we had. Um, and every round, it's just become much more 
true. There's much more, you know, every round there's, there's more um, products that they've built. There's more customers that can reference that their, their thesis of changing the way products are built and sold to the department of defense is actually becoming a reality. And mm. so I think that the, that's why I go back to like the founders themselves being extraordinary because some of the most important visions are often the hardest visions to achieve. And so you can have a person say, this is, you know, this is the game plan for how we're going to, to reach a certain level or how we're going to be able to change a, a sector but if they can't marshal the resources, if they can't raise capital, if they can't recruit people uh, because no one else believes their thesis, if they can't tell the story, then even if they understand what's happening in the market, they might not be able to achieve it. So I'd say that the big way that, that I anchor on every investment that I do is by you know, really doing this sort of thoughtful analysis about is the founder extraordinary? Wow. Um, maybe we can go, go into that a little bit more. So what you know, kind of differentiates? You already talked a little bit about a founder who is extraordinary and kind of what, you know, how um, they're able to share or like, you know, kind of convey a compelling narrative, for example, maybe what are some differences between let's say a good founder and an extraordinary founder, you know, I think everyone here, you know, we believe is extraordinary who's part of the accelerator, but I think what differentiates as you've seen a good founder versus a, you know, a really exceptional one. That, that, so that's also a, a, a great point. You can be a good founder and still build a massive company. You might not build a game-changing, extraordinary company that that is, you know, like you might not be Elon Musk, but you can be a good founder and build a big company. And like, I'd say that there's a place in venture capital for that. The extraordinary founders are different, and they're just they're they're cut from a different cloth. And and I'll, I'll give you examples. Like there's there's people who, when you ask them a question, it is very clear that they don't have a talk track, that they're actually thinking through things from first principles every time mm. that they approach a new question. And they do that in their business as well. And so if you're talking to someone about, okay, how are you going to change the Department of Defense? Or in the case of something like Nova Credit, like how are you going to do cross-border credit when no one's ever been able to do that before? And the three legacy players that have been around 100 years have not been able to integrate their, their credit systems to allow for that. The, the, the people who drill down on those questions, it's so clear that they haven't just like thought about it once. Every time they're asked a new question, they're, they're thinking about the answers again with updated information. So the, the story that you're getting, it, it's not something you've heard before. And, and I think like that is like a trait of someone that I look for where it's like every time they're updating the information. So sometimes they know they're wrong and then they backtrack and they think through how are we going to, to achieve the mission we said if we're wrong about the thesis. So there, there's just a way of being where every time you're asked a question, it's not performative. It's not, you know, it, it's not someone saying, okay, I've synthesized all this information and now I'm going to make a judgment about it. It's someone who's really thinking through, okay, if this, then that. And it's a way of thinking from first principles that most of us have not been taught to think. And if someone can think like that, they're usually going to, you know, Elon Musk, for example, heard every expert say, there's no way you're going to be able to build this type of rocket. And he read the books himself and then said, actually, this is wrong. I'm thinking of it from first principles and like mm. science has been wrong about this. For someone to have the confidence that their own thoughts about a field where the experts are telling you everything you're saying is wrong is, is actually true is an extraordinary type of person that can kind of push all of the expertise out, push all of the, this is how we've done things before and think through things constantly from first principles to push an industry forward. So that's what I think makes a founder extraordinary. And those are the sorts of people that, you know, there, there aren't many of them. So when you find them, you have to support them and, 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 and kind of protect them in many ways as well. I love that. Wow. That is uh, that's a pretty amazing advice. So I'm actually going to bring up Eric. So Eric is here. He'll be taking over the hosting uh, duties and Catherine, just hang it for one sec. Hello. <laughs> How are you? 
I'm, I'm doing great. Thank you, Mustafa, for, for pitching in. Had some welcome challenges. Catherine, I'm curious how you uh, advise founders sort of the balance between, you know, confidence and seeing the future before it happens, but also humility over what you've done and what you haven't done yet to date. H- how do you think founders should, should thread that needle, you know, seeming uh, ambitious and a believer in the future, but also realistic about where they're at and, and the challenges ahead as, as, in a way that will help you assess, you know, wh- whether uh, you can buy their their story. So I actually think they're 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 the the more you're focused on the future, the more humble you become. So I actually don't think they're they're mutually exclusive. I think intellectual humility is a sign of someone who's thinking from first principles. The hubris that I think we see from people is when they're not asking the the why question, and when they're not asking the how are we going to get there. The why question is usually where people you know have more confidence. And then the how is the daunting one of, oh, now we actually have to figure out a game plan of how we're going to get to the future. And that's usually where if you don't have humility at the why part, you're definitely going to have humility at the how. Intellectual humility, I do think, is is a sign of someone who realizes just how much there is to be done. And yeah. I, you know, I keep pointing to Elon Musk because I think it's it's a it's a person we can all look at and kind of see from, you know, everyone knows who he is. And, you know, I, I, I use him as a good example. But, you know, when, when when he was asked, like, well, well, why did you stop working on companies that were you know focused on the Internet? He's like, I just realized there was just so much more to be done. I had done enough on the Internet and there was a lot of problems to fix. And, you know, even though he has what I think people would consider extreme confidence, he, he has extreme intellectual humility about how difficult the challenges are. And so I would use him as a model of when you're really digging into the problems that you're trying to solve, being humble about, OK, here's the time frame. And, and here's why it's going to be difficult. And here's why we're going to need these yeah. resources. But if you can push people harder than they've ever been pushed, you might be able to move up that timeline. I think that's a sign of extraordinary entrepreneur. Um, yeah. So it might manifest as extreme hubris, but it's actually coming from a place of humility. Ben Caymans uh, is, is a founder that, that you've backed and we've backed as well, who um, I think threads the needle so well on, oh, on being yeah. so humble and yet so, so ambitious. You don't think, oh, this person is you know, is not going all out or, or not shooting for the stars. And yet um, you, you feel you, you feel trusting of him. Absolutely. And, he, and he's someone I mean, I, I, a humble is like the word that comes across whenever whenever speaking to him. But when you look at him, OK, someone who, you know, self-taught himself uh, about a field of longevity, which is an emerging field that very few people can understand. Yeah. And he had the intellectual courage uh, to go into that field. That's that takes an extreme amount of confidence. Uh, but he manifests as pure humility and just really understanding that the the mission is more important than anything. So yeah, I, I, he's a perfect example of that. Uh, I, I know Ben well. I don't know Palmer well from Andrew, who, who you, you've also uh, worked closely with. Compare yeah. or contrast that that style in terms of what, what can founders learn from from Palmer? And, and- Palmer is 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 one of the most. In, I mean, if not the like, his intellectual curiosity is extraordinary, and he is a perfect example of someone where it doesn't matter if you're talking about uh, battery technology or if you're talking about Survivor, the, <laughs> the reality show. Every question you ask him is taken from first principles. Like, it, like there's there is no question that is not interesting to Palmer, and that is not is not answered in a way where you're like, huh, I had no idea that someone could think that deeply about something so mundane. Um, and so, you know, I, I think it's a, a certain type of mind that is constantly trying to push the, the limits of knowledge about everything. Um, and, and that's Palmer to a T. And I think, you know, going back to how it manifests, you know, Palmer is someone who is extremely confident about trying to find the truth. And the closer he's getting to the truth, 
uh, you know, the more excited he becomes. And it, there's a, a manifestation that's just like extraordinary to be around and energy that's extraordinary to be around. And I think that's why Palmer has been so good at recruiting because yeah. you, you see his mind working in real time and you see the excitement that comes in real time. And people want to be around that kind of energy. People want to be around something that's so bold and so big. And also the flip side of that is when things aren't working, when you're trying to build a product, but things aren't coming together, not becoming frustrated, being just equally as excited that there's a problem that you can solve. I, to me, that's like the sort of like almost like perfect, perfect learning manifested that people just love being around, which is why I think he's just been extraordinary at recruiting across both Oculus and Andrel. So yeah. I, to me, that, that he's the sort of person uh, when you watch him in action, that it just lifts everyone up and makes everyone else feel better about, okay, it's it's fun to dig into hard problems. It's fun to fail. It's fun to fail and then succeed. You know, if the rocket blows up, the rocket blows up, but like yeah. we're going to succeed next time. And that sort of energy is just very, it's, it takes a unique mind uh, to be able to, to, to constantly approach problem solving in that way. Yeah. How do you, tell between sort of like any heuristic or framework you use to tell between sort of like the good kind of crazy versus like the, you know, dicey kind of crazy or the sort of like good kind of salesmanship versus the, I don't know if this is going to work salesmanship for sort of founders who you even have to ask that question. The first, but you've been, obviously you don't, um, but there are others who, you know, their thing requires selling the thing requires, you know, um, sort of evangelism of, of that kind or, or certain craziness. Is there a tell or something that you, you look for? Yeah. So, I mean, I think depth of thought, like, is 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 hard to fake. Yeah. So that's sort of the first thing you look for is, okay, you know, anyone can memorize a talk track. Anyone can memorize, you know, anyone can, like, selling is a gift, but it's also, like, you can, you know, sell me this pen. Like, pe- people yeah. can do that. So So when you're trying to sell a really big, bold idea that no one's ever done before, looking for the clues of has this person actually thought through, you know, like one of, one of the, the commonalities that I see that's sort of just a, a cheat sheet for me on founders is that the, the most extraordinary founders are also historians. They know everything about their industry. They know everything about their competitors. They, they read obsessively or they, they talk to people obsessively and they get information obsessively because they are so paranoid that they might be missing something. That is something that can't be fake. It takes time. And so if I'm new to an industry and I'm asking a question, how does this work? Because I'm genuinely curious about it. And the answer isn't robust. To me, that's like the number one tip off. Like, okay, you haven't done your homework. If you haven't done your homework, uh, a, a smarter competitor will come along and, and eat your lunch. So yeah. that's something that can't be faked. I will say, you know, if you look across any place where sales is important, and I think I'm not just talking about technology, I'm talking about selling anything. If you're selling a car, if you're selling a service uh, in a small town in America, the, the best salespeople all have empathy for their customer, and it's a genuine empathy that can't be faked. So if I hear a founder talking about a customer as stupid or as, okay, like we're, we're going to do this because it's a, a hack. And, you know, when we talk about sort of like those salespeople where you get a spidey sense that things are not right, like true salesmanship or, you know, being able to sell is, or being able to sell is understanding that you are making the customer's life better and genuinely believing it. And yeah. so that I, I feel like that's hard to fake as well. Um, and the, the people who are, are best at sales, who really believe in their vision, um, are never going to approach the ecosystem with which they are working uh, with, with hubris. Um, yeah. And so you can test for that as well. It reminds me of, the, of uh, Catherine has a fantastic Substack, stack um, and she just released a post on seriousness. 
do you want to maybe unpack the the main idea and as it relates to as it relates to founders how you could sort of sniff out and part of it obviously is doing the work but any yeah. other sort of tells that you can sniff out you know who's serious versus who, who's you know posing as serious yeah no and, and i should be very clear that when i talk about seriousness it, i'm not talking about not being funny uh, I think humor is probably the most important uh, important thing we need for the, the, the days we're living in today. But I'm talking about just a, a seriousness of mission, um, with the with the opposite being irony. Um, and so I think it's really easy. Um, and and you know I, I kind of trace it back to the 1960s where we sort of lost faith in the American project. We sort of lost faith in our own ability to achieve great things. You could say it ended with the moon landing as well. Like what's left to achieve? Um, and so we sort of had this view that. A lot of things in the American experience and just even just the, the human experience are no longer interesting. And so we'll just deconstruct, you know, we'll, we'll look at ourselves and we'll say, oh, like, look how terrible we are and we won't achieve anything new. And I think that's sort of been a lot of what we've seen probably in the last few decades from a lot of our elite institutions. We haven't seen that much innovation. And the only place where I think we're having a seriousness of mission where people are thinking through things from how sh- should things look, what, what should we achieve is, is Silicon Valley. And you know you're being serious if people are laughing at you. Because and I point to you know Elon Musk going to Mars and doing space colonization. If you talk to anyone normal, they're like, it's weird that he thinks we're going to live on Mars. That's absurd that he actually believes that. If you look at the most serious pockets of innovation in America, they get made fun of. I'd say you know Silicon Valley has, is slightly on the decline in many ways in terms of like how how it's viewed and, and people leaving, but like where are places becoming much more robust? It's places like Provo, Utah and Miami, and those places get made fun of a ton by normal people in the mainstream press. So I think you know that you're being serious if people are mocking you. Um, and the most serious people are mocked and they don't care. Uh, so I think that's a tell for founders themselves. If you're, uh, you know, if people are persecuting you, if people are looking at you and saying, wow, you're kind of weird and it's embarrassing, I don't want to be around you anymore. Uh, that's actually sometimes a very, very good sign, often a very, very good sign that the seriousness with which you're taking your mission is uh, just not that, that, that it's extraordinary and that at some point everyone will see kind of the light at the end of the tunnel and see that you're right. Yeah, no, I, I love that. It reminds me of your other framework because I'm a serious student of Catherine Boyle. I know I know your frameworks. The, uh, <laughs> you know my talk. Uh, this is why I'm an investor. Yeah. If I don't think from first principles, I just memorize what I've written before. <laughs> exactly. Um, it reminds me of the, uh, the reason and, and revelation. Um, yeah. uh, when you unpack a little bit uh, how you think about that from your investment? Yes, yeah, so I stole that as well. That's not, that's not original. That's from a, a philosopher called, uh, named Leo Strauss, uh, who talks about sort of the, the kind of difference in, in sort of Western civilization as being the difference between Athens and Jerusalem, with Athens being sort of the, the place where we derived all of Western logic, uh, sort of Greek philosophy, you know, kind of uh, all of our institutions from, you know, American democracy are borrowed from that. Um, and Jerusalem being sort of the the kind of cornerstone of, of revelation in all, you know, many world religions. Um, and so he, he always had this framework of, how, you know, kind of what is the what is the kind of binding of reason and revelation? And I very much believe that life is sort of this balance of, of reason and revelation as, as manifested by, by logic and sort of these secrets that are given to us that we don't know where they're from. And when you t- listen to other, you know, much more experienced investors than me talk about their frameworks, secrets is something they talk about a lot. Peter Thiel talks about secrets a lot. Um, and secrets defined kind of, you know, secrets are talked about in philosophy as these things that are more divine, uh, that are kind of given to people and we don't know where they come from. And so I do think that a lot of the, the founding experience is uh, a, a combination of you're, you're using logic in order to achieve great things. 
but there are just these nuggets of wisdom that are these gifts from the universe or from wherever, you know, whatever kind of words you want to use uh, that most people can't fathom and they can't understand and they're not going to see them. So I do look for people who I think are looking out for secrets um, yeah. and sort of understand that if you are using logic uh, on reusable locket or on on reusable rockets, like you wouldn't have invested in SpaceX probably ever. But if you are using a balance of reason and revelation to believe that the future is is going to happen, then you yeah. will invest in SpaceX or or join SpaceX to help build it. So I think that's that's sort of my my framework for every extreme case of extraordinary achievement has is something that we just can't believe we did in hindsight. So it's it's anchored to revelation as well as reason. If it's it's almost like you know, being serious requires this sort of faith that, you know, something is worthwhile or could be worthwhile. And that's a revelation part. And then, uh, you know, requires your, your faith such that you would explore and develop the reason to justify it or, or not justify it and move on to move on to something else. Yeah. No, and I, and I do think, I mean, most people do have these sort of experience throughout life where, you know, and they're not common, but they're these like, like, epiphanies you know like like we've throughout history philosophers and, and scientists have talked about these things where it's like how did we discover this and it was just someone you know sitting under a tree in many cases discovering things and then someone tinkering for years upon years and finally doing something differently and it works and it's like that combination of having extreme knowledge and extreme passion for something that you're going to continue working at it but also opening the door to there may just be something that happens that, that we don't really understand and the combination of those sorts of things, I think from an investment lens in particular, like you have to be open to things that sort of push the bounds of science, push the bounds of reality, knowing that, you know, longevity wasn't a field 50 years ago. And now we're understanding its importance and it's becoming even more clear because of what's happened during COVID. If, you know, like you, you can't look to the past and just say, we're never going to, you know, that that all of knowledge is, is sort of understood now and that I'm going to only look at what's happened in the past as a framework. No, you have to be open to the fact there's so many things we don't know and that those sort of pockets of not knowing are actually important into making decisions. Yeah. I want to go to sort of the, uh, the nuts and bolts of some of the, the fundraising process. It, how have you have sort of evolved in terms of your thinking of what makes a great fundraising narrative or fundraising story or, you know, cause every time a team is pitching um, their story, there are things that are particularly, well, ideally particularly strong and some things that are less proven, um, you know, over time or, or just haven't proven at all or potential weak, weak points for that's probably the experience for most uh, founders who are pitching. W- what do you advise in terms of, you know, storytelling around sort of the, the strengths or weaknesses or, or things that you particularly want, want to hear? So, so the, the biggest mistake that I see founders make, especially in this market is they think it's a great market. And so they have to go out and they're not ready personally. They haven't achieved the things they want to achieve. And they go out and the market's not pulling them. They're pushing out into the market. And I think it is a case of, of push versus pull. And then they go in front of, you know, investors. They have a great story. And objectively, it's a great story. But something is off. And I, and I think one of the things we don't talk about enough in the fundraising process is how much feeling is involved. Even if investors tell you they're looking for metrics, like they want to feel something. And if you go into, an, you know, in front of a, a partner meeting and it is clear that you are not confident in the story that you are telling, you will fail. And that is, so that is the thing that I constantly advise founders. Like if you can wait another quarter when you're going to have more confidence, you should wait another quarter, even if the market looks so extraordinary right now that you think you're gonna get a better price. Like you have to, you have to believe the story you are telling or 
people like me who listen to stories for a living are going to see that you don't believe the story you are telling. And so that's the number one thing, like belief in the story. And then I think there's a, you know, a combination of you, you often, you, you want to be pulled into the market for the right reasons. You don't want to push into the market. Sometimes you don't have that luxury. Sometimes you need more capital. And so when you think about how do you tell a story where maybe all the stories sound the same or there's still a lot of imperfections in the story, I think authentic, like focusing on the strengths of the story is important. And then authentically owning what is weak and how you are going to make it not weak, I think is the thing I don't see founders do enough. So, so often you want to gloss over that weakness slide that's sort of like hidden in the middle. And it's like, why not talk about all the ways you're going to fix it after you've already blown people away with all the extraordinary things about your company? Like, here's what we know. Like our margin story, not that great now, but we're not going to IPO for X amount in a year. And here's how we're going to fix it. And here's the people we need to hire. And I know like here's our weakness is that we don't have a director of growth. And so like these are the candidates I'm looking at. Here are the 20 people that I just went through LinkedIn and like contacted today. And I'm just pounding down their door because this is what my company needs. Like if I hear that as an investor, it's like, oh, this person is extraordinary. Like they're they're actually thinking about and, and telling me they have the confidence to tell me everything that's wrong with their business after they've already told me why it's going to be amazing business. So I think that, that founders should do that a little bit more. Yeah. You know, Paul Graham's, I think one liner on this is, yeah, the best way. Yeah, basically, he said, best way to convince others that your, you know, your fundraising is to convince that your fun, uh, fundable is to convince yourself. <laughs> and yeah. it's interesting because some people have a higher bar for that than than others. And our quick story uh, on the on deck side is a year ago we raised a um, a seed round at around I think twenty five valuation. It, it was you know one point five million. And at the time, the the CEO thank, thankful for him. He, he was sold on it, but because I was I guess an investor mindset we didn't have a path to get to hundred million in revenue. And I was like, I don't know if we're venture backable. And it was interesting because what, what, what I was sold on was um, the customer love and, and the, the defensibility of the asset that we were building and that there were things that we could, there were a number of things that we could build, but uh, you know, I, I was sort of very honest with people that we just, you know, we didn't know how we were going to get there yet. We just knew that, we were going to try a bunch of different things and we, we, we listed a, a few of them people. I, I, I was surprised that we raised, I, I, but I think people appreciated it. And then similarly for this, we, we, you know, we TEDx that round side valuation in a year. And similarly for this one, now it's like, Oh, we know how to get to hundred million. We don't know how we're going to get beyond that. I got more comfortable with that idea of like, not everything has to be figured out totally. if you have something, you know, really valuable. And can I say the other thing that just makes you so unique? And I think, you know, is something that you can't fake with investors that I take so seriously. It's who is your posse? And the, like you said, customer love, which I think is really important. But I also think what is the community? And exceptional founders just have a flock of people who follow them, like just everywhere. You know, and, and you, you certainly have this where it's like people just want to be around that sort of energy. And so sometimes that's like not brought up enough in the, the pitch meetings. Like I think you have that sort of posse that just like is extraordinary and like very, very driven into like very focused on like helping you succeed and wanting to be a part of the story. It's like the supporting cast in a movie. You know, it's yeah. like it's like the, the more people who want to be in the movie, the better. So th that's I, I think that's something that really in the earliest of days you can't fake. And to yeah. your point, like you might not have the story of, you know, it, it might not become clear. There might be a macro shift that says this is how we become a hundred billion dollar company. 
that happens in the course of a company. I mean, like, like look at Jeff Bezos, like he was selling books. Like he wasn't like, sure. Yeah. In retrospect, yeah. He, he's built the most extraordinary company, but like, you know, no, like that, that story wasn't concrete when he was talking to investors from day one. So I think, you know, there, there are certain traits that you can't fake. You certainly can't fake community and you certainly can't fake people wanting to follow you. Yeah, I appreciate that. And another founder that comes to mind who is really interesting in this realm, and we have a fireside chat with him in a few weeks, is uh, uh, Connor from, from Rome in our portfolio. Yeah. From from day one, before he had anything, he's always been sort of like, um, you know, we're going to beat Notion, et cetera. And at the beginning, you know, we, we rejected him a couple of times. We're like, who's this crazy, crazy, crazy guy? But over time, just watching how he built his community and the sort of reception that he was getting and uh, the posse that he, he was creating – it was, it was possible to fake, um, and we got conviction, and a lot of a lot of other people did too. Um, extreme intellectual curiosity, yeah. where even the people that that you know that, that are applied, or he's like, well, figure out a way to do this better. You know, like he's, yeah. he's, he's <laughs> extraordinarily intellectually curious in a way yeah. that you can't fake it. Yeah, no, totally. I asked him to share his feedback. Um, he had some interesting frameworks. I, I, I asked him to share them on Twitter, and he said, "The path that can be shown is not the path." <laughs> <laughs> he just <laughs> he's very funny. So going down to the nuts and bolts, what do you see in terms of founders who run really great processes? Like how soon should they be engaging you before going to fundraise to fundraise, if at all? Should they be doing a lot of parallel process? Like how do you sort of recommend uh, you know, if you invest in someone at the pre-seed and now they're running a, a seed process? How do you how do you think about that? So I think it's different for every founder, and this is what's so frustrating. I, you know, there's one founder where where I've you know advised a founder, hey, like meet with investors beforehand, talk to these people, really get them to understand your story. And then there's other founders I've advised where I've said, don't talk to any investors because you know I've seen founders be very successful not talking to investors before and creating the kind of FOMO that exists in the market. I think the most important thing to understand about fundraising is that. You have a story, but there's also this kind of weird market dynamic that you really also have to understand as well. And, and kind of there's the narrowness of here's my company, but, but there's also the question of where does my company fit in the broader ecosystem and the best founders understand both and kind of know what strategy to play. So there's a strategy to fundraising, but there's also a lot of art to fundraising because I, I've seen founders with zero revenue go out at a series A and have an extraordinary fundraise. And then I've seen founders that have an exceptional amount of revenue, just not be able to get people excited. And I think yeah. some of that has to do with story, but some of it also has to do with just understanding the market that you're in and the steps you need to take in order to bring people along. So, yeah. uh, you know, the, the, the only sort of general generalized advice I can give is really understand your own story, get really good at understanding strengths and weaknesses, being authentic, explaining all of the things that everyone would want to know about your own company, but then also understand where your sector fits in the market, how the market is, is shaping up, Stay true to your story, but also understand kind of what investors are going to need. So much as like even who's the investor I'm talking to. And, you know, if they've done five investments in a space, are they going to do a sixth? Maybe not. Then maybe I shouldn't anchor right. on that person leading my round. You know, like those sorts of human dynamics really, really matter. And there's sort of an art and a humanness to, to fundraising that that's really hard to perfect. Yeah. I mean, it's really interesting also around just one's mental psychology around the cognitive dissonance around like you want to project confidence. I be, be confident, but you also want to like project humility. Cause at any given point, you don't know if you're like a nine out of 10 or a six out of 10 in people, in people's eyes. And 
depending where you are, you act sort of differently and whether you do have leverage or you don't have, like, do you have term sheets? Do you not have term sheets? But you project confidence as if you're about to get term sheets. It's interesting to sort of like mental psychology exercise. Yeah. And and that's why I think like the, the probably the most valuable thing you can do is to, like the, the best founders are constantly obsessed with the mission to the point where they lose sense of self. Yeah. And it's really, really hard to do if it's like a supernatural, like kind of like yeah. superpower if you can actually do it. But like, if you're so focused on achieving the mission, you sort of lose kind of clarity around, you know, like we, we all know this about our own lives. Like when we're so focused on on the next milestone and we're so nervous about it, people sense that nervousness. Yeah. But if you're focused on, hey, I'm just going to do this thing. And it doesn't matter what anyone thinks of me. I'm just doing it. And this is like how we're going to achieve it. People sense that confidence. Yeah. And so just constantly meditate on the mission, like constantly get out of your own head. Think about what you're building because I think going into a fundraise with this sort of like Zen, like attitude of we are going to achieve this, whether you're part of the story or not, has always been much more beneficial than going in saying, how am I going to please this one investor? Yeah. Like you should never think the investor is more important than the mission. Yeah, that's a, that's a great line. Uh, what what types of risks are you okay taking versus, versus not taking? Like what's important for founders to have de-risked when they think, if they think, hey, I'm, you know, I'm going to fundraise in six months or some, you know, and, and you invest in regulated industries, which has its own sort of set, set of risks. How do you think about de-risking and, and what types of risks you're, you're okay taking versus not? So I think in, in this market, you're, you're going to find it very difficult for investors to take on undue technical risk when software is just a beautiful thing and where off the shelf component parts, even if you're building hardware is sort of the, you know, the way that that we're innovating to build to, to bring products to market. So I think there there's a certain type of capital that's totally fine. And you see it more in like biosciences. But if you're building a therapeutic, there's binary technical risk and that you're either going to be able to, to make the therapeutic or not. And that's a certain type of investor that has a totally different investment strategy of taking on that kind of risk so that you know several technical innovations can fail, but you can still make a return. I think in terms of venture capital, particularly kind of the venture capital that, that most of us function in where software is dominant, it is much harder, especially if you're a generalist firm, to convince people to take on that sort of science or technical risk. And, and when I say technical risk, I'm not talking about like hardware because it, there's enough hardware that's off the, off the shelf where a hardware-software hybrid can actually be a very valuable thing and you can do it very quickly. I'm talking about the sort of like scientific R&D risk that will take years that is mostly, you know, mostly funded by government, mostly funded by academic institutions, that would be very difficult to take on in a generalist firm. Now, there might be like specific firms that do that. There aren't that many, even firms that say they're focused on science usually aren't taking on that much science risk. They're usually taking on just the commercialization risk of it. But I think it's it's hard for investors to take on that kind of risk because there might not be follow on capital. So if you are one of these companies that is doing the extreme thing where you're trying to do scientific innovation, it's probably better to to take on non-dilutive capital, to take on you know government funding in some way, and to not start the clock on venture capital until you've solved the scientific element of that. So that's that I think is I don't know if that answers your question, but I think that's the the hardest type of risk to take on. What are good why now answers for you, and what's a what's not a good why now answer? Uh, I mean, good, good. Why now is are the, the honest answers for why now, um, <laughs> yeah. which differ, which differ for probably every founder. I mean, why now is probably the most important question because 
you know, and it, there's so many examples of amazing innovation that just hasn't been able to, to happen because uh, it's not the right time. And so investors have to be very good at get the, getting the timing, timing right. Um, and I think founders have to be very honest about why they're building something now. It can't just be like, in my own personal life, I want to achieve X. It has to be, what is the macro shift occurring? And this goes back to, to something we talked about earlier, which is understanding the history. I think if you understand the history of a market, you will understand the why now much better. And you can save yourself a lot of pain if you are indeed getting the market timing wrong, if you understand the history of the market. So the why now answer should be robust enough to explain the history of, of why something is different right now. What are the macro shifts that have happened that, that, that make it more compelling? And, and all of the different facets that go into company building. So the why now can be anything from, you know, there's this incredible supply of AI engineers that didn't exist coming out of academic universities 10 years ago. And so we can achieve X in the way that we couldn't achieve it 10 years ago. But, but there's usually multiple macro shifts that have happened when you're talking about a company that is going to achieve extraordinary things. Yeah. And just to take it, you know, one among many other industries that you, you know well, um, media and Substack, could Substack have been built in 2012 or is there something you know unique about, I don't know, the last couple of years or few years that, that have enabled it? So, I mean, I, I think going back to the whole like founders matter, I think these are unique founders that really understood product architecture in a way that I don't think any other founders understood it. Yeah. Everyone has been, you know, I, I came out of media and I remember like coming to the Valley and being like, we're going to solve the media problem. And like, I couldn't solve it. Like, no, like you know, the, the number of, of attempts that have, that have been made shows that this is a very unique solution that only came up from the, the unique combination of the founders. I do think if you're looking at the macro shifts that Substack has, has played off of, you know, one of them is that there is this incredible, you know, way for, for individual writers to make money now by monetizing their own following. When you think of like even just the importance of Twitter and the importance of, of kind of being a solo thinker online, you know, that didn't exist in 2015 in the way that it does now. Yeah. Um, Twitter has become a much more important property over the last four years, in my opinion. But beyond that, too, I mean, there's just also just cultural changes that are happening in American newsrooms that are leading to just this cascade of extraordinary writers leaving these institutions, knowing that they can monetize their following, but also wanting the independence of thought that Substack brings. And so when you look at a, a, a company like that, those are, I, I mean, I've named two of the many, many shifts that have happened that have, that have led to what I think is an extraordinary kind of movement. And there wasn't a movement in media that was built by outsiders. I, I would actually consider the Substack team to be outsiders, not media insiders. A lot of what was happening before was media insiders. Um, and so I think that's one of the, the reasons why you didn't see kind of any real innovation over the last 10 years in the media world. Hey, hey Julie. Hi, hi, Eric. And hi, Catherine. Please, hi. Please ask your question. Yeah. So, so the, where I'm coming from here is I'm trying to like empathize with investors. Like I don't, I've never been an investor. Um, and for me, as my, my question is, why do you care so much about the competitor slide? Right. And for, for, for me as a, as a founder, like I'm thinking about driving value for my customers. I'm thinking about improving my product, selling, and that's about it. Like, honestly, I don't really care who my competitors are. Mm -hmm. And I think my understanding of why VCs care about the competitor slide is that it helps you kind of understand how we're different from from others and bucket us properly is that right i'm just like I, I i guess it's hard for me to understand from your perspective why that's an important slide so 
or an important discussion point rather. Yeah, so I mean, I could speak to why I think other VCs care about the slide and then I can speak to why I care about the slide. I don't think it's the most important slide, but I think it's just another kind of proxy for how deeply a founder has thought. But I think most VCs care about it because they do not want to be in the wrong company in a sector. And by the wrong company, I mean market leader. They want to pick, they, investors are looking for the, the company that is going to own the market. It's just because of the power law of how capital works, of how recruiting works. If you are the number one, there is a huge delta between number one and number two. So if you're a multi-stage firm and you invest in the seed or series A of a company that everyone's convinced the sector is going to be important, but there's going to be multiple companies in the space, you want to make sure you're in the right one so you're not precluded out. So that is, I think, the institutional reason why VCs are so focused on competitor slide, because the worst thing you can do, and I'll even talk about it from a career standpoint. If you're an investor, a young investor, and you pick the wrong company, it, it, it's like it, it's a mistake that people do not want to make. They'd rather have the time to pick the right company. So it, it's an important slide for that reason. I'd say the reason I care about it is because it shows that you've done your homework. If, if I'm starting a company and I'm like, I know, I'm convicted that my thesis is right. There's all these other theses that could be right, and I want to know why they're wrong. So I'm going to do as much homework to find out why those theses are wrong because it, it affects how I think about my own thesis. So if I'm talking to a founder and it's like, well, here are all these other companies. Why are they wrong? And the founder's like, well, I don't know much about them. Like, but that, that's just to me, that's a signal that, okay, why don't you know much about them? Like, I'm going to, I want to know why they're wrong. I'm going to go do as much homework as possible to know why they're wrong. Uh, but it, but you've de you've dedicated your life to this, so tell me why they're wrong. So I think it's it's much more it, it's easier. I think it's the, the best way a founder can think about it is thinking about it almost from a debate or Socratic perspective of you want to destroy the argument of your competitor to improve your own argument. And so if you think about it that way, it becomes a much more uh, informative slide than the oh I just have to deal with VCs worried that they're going to get in the wrong company, which is not what you should be worried about. You should be worried about your thesis. Cool. Yeah. Thank you, Joanna. That was great. We, uh, we end every village conversation with uh, the, the village tradition, which is you know, no founder can, uh, can change the world alone. It requires a village around you to help realize one's full potential. Uh, who is someone in your village, uh, Catherine, who's been instrumental to your success and how so? That, I mean, I love this question. There's a lot of people who have been instrumental in my success. The, the person that, that, I, that I always point to is the person who gave me a, a break. And it was Trey Stevens at Founders Fund who allowed me to intern with him for seven months when I was new to the Valley and knew absolutely nothing about venture capital. And now I, you know, support his company at the board level. Um, and, and, you know, breaks like that that come from cold emails, you can't manufacture them. It's like blessings and secrets, these things that are just like, how do they happen? So he's been extraordinary in terms of being a mentor to me but also to be able to be part of a mission where just to see someone changing the world, particularly with such a great group of people like the people at Anderil, uh, is great. So that has been just an instrumental mentorship relationship in my life. And I'm so grateful they answered the cold email. <laughs> yeah, that's, uh, that's an amazing note to, to wrap on. Uh, Catherine, thank you so much for sharing your wisdom uh, with, uh, with our founders. And uh, yeah, we're, we're, we're really grateful. Awesome. Thanks so much, Eric. This is always so much fun. This community is amazing. And so thank you so much for having me. If you're an early stage entrepreneur, we'd love to hear from you. Check us out at villageglobal.vc.